I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 14 as we uh, continue our series that we've been in for quite a while on the Gospel of Mark. And we're looking today at a really remarkable passage uh, because it's really two stories that are alongside each other in this one passage. Uh, Mark seems to weave these two stories together to contrast us uh, between Jesus' arrest on one hand and Peter's denial on the other. And we'll see some of the parallels. Years ago, um, a man named Bob Dylan sang a song, and he said, how does it feel to be on your own with no direction home like a rolling stone? And uh, sometimes we feel that our lives are a little bit like that. But God is a solid rock for those who are believers in him and followers of him. Uh, In the words of Larry Norman, one of the first contemporary Christian musicians, uh, Jesus is the rock that doesn't roll. And so we have a firm and steady anchor, as we just sang, in Jesus. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, Our ancestors in the wilderness were guided by a cloud, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. So Christ is a spiritual rock that accompanied Israel in the wilderness, and now he is, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3, the foundation of the church. The other rock is Peter, Petros, which means rock in Greek, and the name that he got from Jesus. And at least here, this rock crumbles under the pressure uh, that was brought on by being identified as one of Jesus' followers. Uh, Peter's name means rock, but on his own, uh, his rock disintegrated. The word witness uh, is found seven times in Mark chapter 14. And uh, that gives us a, a good idea that this is something that Mark is trying to get across to us uh, of what it means to be a witness. The, the Greek word for to witness or to testify is the word that we get the word, our English word martyr from. Uh, it, it, it's to tell the truth, even if it costs a lot, even if it costs our own life. Uh, Mark wanted to teach the early church, and this is on your outline, if you're following along on your outline, that we need to learn from this um, and what it takes to succeed in a very inhospitable world. That's the world we live in. Uh, Boy, and you heard it about the Mausolite. How is it hard for you in, in the context that you are working in right now here, in the neighborhood that you live in at, at your work. Um, the question that this passage confronts us with is, will you stand up for the truth? And especially the truth about Jesus, no matter what it costs. Mark is going to show us how this happens for Peter. Before we look at Peter, we want to first look at Jesus. And so number one on your outline is that Jesus is the solid rock. So presiding over this sham trial is Joseph Caiaphas, the high priest and the president of the Sanhedrin. 
A high priest would normally serve for four years. Caiaphas served for 19. He had a stranglehold on the Sanhedrin. Uh, This trial that we're going to be reading about was not a legal trial. By their own rules, by the Sanhedrin's own rules, a final judgment could not be made at night. And this was nighttime that they were meeting. It was not to meet outside the chambers of the temple. And that's exactly what they were doing. They were not meeting in the temple. And a capital offense, one where somebody would die for what they did, was not to be determined during the Passover. And this was the Passover. So even with all of their own rules being broken, they still begin their charade by looking for unanimous evidence from two witnesses, but they can't get it. So let's pick it up at verse 55 of Mark chapter 14. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. We'll stop there for for now. These witnesses could not get their story straight. And Caiaphas had to be embarrassed as well as angry and furious about what Jesus was doing. Jesus was saying nothing up to this point. Look at verse 60. We'll pick it up there. Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent And gave no answer. Well, this was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, where it says in verse 7 Yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb uh, to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then at the end of verse 61, Caiaphas asked Jesus, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. Now, what Caiaphas was asking him was two questions. You actually have them on your outline. The first one is Jesus, is is he the Messiah? And then is he God? And, And when they use the term blessed one in the New Testament, it's always referring back to God. So... Uh, At verse, I think it's verse 62, where Jesus says, I am. It's a declaration that he's God. When Jesus says in John, he said the same thing in John. If you might remember John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews knew exactly what he was saying because what is their response in John 8 when Jesus says that? They pick up stones to throw at him. It says in verse 59, John 8. And so when Jesus says in Mark 14, and and then he goes on and says, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so you have this on your outline. This is both a confession and also a terrible warning that refers back to three Old Testament passages that 
you have on your outline. I hope you'll go back and, and look those up. There's some, some good passages to read. But th- these are Jesus' only words to, the Israeli, to, the, to Isra- Israel's religious leaders. And, and he is saying, you know what? You are, in essence, what Jesus is saying is, you're judging me right now. But I want you to know that in the end, I will judge you. And the Sanhedrin ignores the warning. So let's pick it up in verse 63. The high priest, talking about Caiaphas, tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Again, we'll stop there, but the glory in all of this is that through everything, Jesus, who is God, but who is also man, living in a human body, is the rock of our salvation, and he did not crack. He became the cornerstone, as it was predicted in in Isaiah 28, and Jesus became the foundation of the church. And remember who's in this with with Jesus in this chapter is Peter. And what does Peter write to the people that he writes to in 1 Peter 2? For it says, in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And so as we look at Jesus' rejection in these verses, he's still human. How did he remain unmoved by all that went on? And the answer is Jesus stood so rock-like, not on his own strength, but by the strength of his heavenly Father. Like we read in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. God is my rock in whom I take refuge. And that is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was taking refuge in his Father. So, And that's the invitation for us, to take refuge in the Father, to make sure he is our hiding place, that we we hide ourselves in him. And so now let's look at Peter. Number two on your outline, Peter is the cracked rock. We can identify with that, right? And what's easiest to see in this text is how Peter failed. Let's go back to verse 29. This is a verse that we actually covered before, but go back to verse 29 in, in Mark 14. I want to look at this. But Peter said to him, even if they all fall away and are caused to stumble and desert you, who's he talking about? All these lesser disciples. Yet I will not. I will not desert you. I will not forsake you. I will not leave you. I won't fail you. I'm better than they are. I love you more than they love you. I will be true to you. I will stand by you. I will be a faithful witness for you, Lord, no matter what happens. Peter goes on, verse 31, and says even more passionately and repeatedly, even if it should be necessary for me to die with you, I will not deny you. I will not disown you, he says. Now, we're going to jump ahead back to verses 53 and 54. Not even how many verses later. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests 
the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance. So he's trying. Right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Now, you know, you have to think this is a little risky. It was about an hour before when Peter cut off one of their ears. And so now he's around the fire with them. They can see his face. This is, this is what he's doing is dangerous. And then when Peter, look at verse, or jump down to verse 71. And when Peter does start to get questioned, then he commenced invoking a curse on himself. Should he not be telling the truth? And swearing, I do not know Jesus. I do not know the man about whom you're talking. Peter's swearing he doesn't know Jesus. This is a terrible public betrayal. What Jesus is doing, what Peter's doing here. And then the minute the rooster crows, the horror of what he's done comes crashing down on him. Verse 72. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And then it says at the end of verse 72, not just that he wept, but that he broke down. Peter falls apart and weeps. What do we learn from this? Well, it's not just Peter sitting in the courtyard. As I was thinking about this passage, I couldn't help but see myself there as well. I think we're all sitting around that fire. We all have opportunities to take a stand for the Lord if we love Jesus. Are you willing to take a stand for him? Even if it means being persecuted? Even if it means people talking about you? Even if it means, even if it means a hard time for you? Will you speak the truth no matter what it costs? Will you speak up for Jesus? Will you identify with him publicly? You know, on our own, none of us are going to succeed. None of us will pass the test. Peter tried so hard. You know he wanted to, but he failed to be a faithful witness. So how did he become a faithful witness? Well, after all this was over, Peter was healed so completely that he became the leading apostle, the leading witness, the one who, who, who for decades publicly and faithfully testified to what Jesus had done for him and to what Jesus said. This is a testimony of the fact that Peter was changed Clement of Alexandria, an early church father, was writing in about 85, um, after, the, after Jesus' birth, 85 years, and says, let us remember the noble examples of our own generation. Through jealousy and hatred, the greatest and most just pillars of our church were persecuted and even put to death. Even Peter, at last having delivered his testimony, departed to the place of glory prepared for him. 
And tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down. They went to crucify him, to kill him, and he did not feel worthy to be crucified like Jesus was crucified. And so tradition has it that he was crucified upside down. And so Peter dies and he goes to glory. So what are the implications of this? Again, what are we supposed to learn from it? One more passage I want to look at as we answer that question. Several days later, on a beach, the risen Jesus meets Peter by a fire in John chapter 21. And three times Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? Remember what we just read back in verse 29 of Mark? It's almost like Jesus is saying, okay, so uh, do you really love me like these guys? Like, like, Like you said earlier, you love me? Like you said you would be faithful and true and and passionate and sold out for me all the time. And Jesus in John 21 is saying, really, Peter, you're going to tell me that you're more sold out than any other disciple? And in essence, Peter three times just says, no, Lord, I just love you. He doesn't argue with him. Peter doesn't explain himself. And I think what's happening here in John 21 is that Jesus is giving Peter a chance to repent, to turn away, and and he does, he repents. And what does Jesus say to him? Then lead my church, feed my sheep, take care of those that, that are my body. And I think we could say what Jesus, that Jesus is saying this to all of us then, Lord, we just love you. Then then you care for the people around you. You care for the body of Christ. And I think that even though we might see ourselves as the biggest failure, we need to hear Jesus saying to us in the midst of whatever we're going through in our lives, the same thing, I, I, I love you, I forgive you, I want to restore you. That's how we're strong, right? When we're weak. Paul says it like this. My grace, and this is what Jesus is speaking to Paul, and Paul records this in 2 Corinthians 12. Jesus says to Paul, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And so now I'm glad to boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses, in the insults and hardships and persecutions, Paul writes, that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. I love the way Hudson Taylor said it. You've got the quote on your outline. God chose me because I was weak enough. He trains somebody to be quiet enough and little enough and then uses them. What a great prayer for us to pray. Lord, make me weak. Make me weak enough that you could use me. Make me quiet enough that you could use me. Make me little enough that you could use me. And the preacher Vance Havner put it like only Vance Havner could put it. The Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up. It was an unbeatable combination. I like that. 
It's as if Jesus says to Peter and to you this morning, when you fail, you immerse your failure in my grace. And then Jesus says, and you do that, I can use you in the greatest way. Nothing brings humility and joy and wisdom like plunging our failures into the grace of God. And you think, I know some of you think, you know what, my sin is too great. God cannot forgive me. Well, you know what? You're not only thinking less of yourself, you're thinking little of God if you think God's grace isn't big enough to forgive your sin. Because where sin abounds, what does God say? There's grace abounds all the more. One preacher, Lloyd Ogilvie, writes this, I have learned this repeatedly in my own life. When my strength is depleted, when my rhetoric is unpolished by human talent, when I am weary, the Lord has a much better tool for empathetic, sensitive communication. The barriers are down. When I know I can do nothing by myself, my poverty becomes a channel of his power. Underline that on your outline. My poverty becomes a channel of his power. More than that, often when I feel I have been least efficient, People have been helped most effectively. It's taken me a long time to learn that the lower my resistances are and the less less self-consciousness I have, the more the word of God comes through. And that's what we want, right? That's greatness. It's like Jesus is saying to Peter and to you, Peter, because you are the biggest mess up and because you're the biggest failure, I've now got you in a position where I can use you. Peter accepted that. And God did use him. And maybe you feel like you've blown it so bad at some area of your life, in whatever area of life that might be, that something happened in your life life that has just thrown your life into chaos. It's thrown you for a loop that you believe that now you're dedicated to plan B because things are just so fouled up. You made a mistake. God made a mistake. You said the wrong thing. You were stupid. It's like we have an AA uh, AA meeting here. My name's Kenny, and I'm stupid. I've done stupid things. We've all done stupid things. But God's grace is always bigger. And whatever it was that you thought, my life will never be right again, Don't listen to that. That's Satan. It's on the outline. When you recognize that God is in control, then you'll know that God never has plan B. He only has plan A. You know, in the same parallel passage that we just read in Mark, in Luke, Jesus says this to Peter in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then, and, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This whole time, what happened to Peter was God's plan A for Peter because God is sovereign. God is powerful enough to use a broken and cracked rock. My weakness and God's strength, an unbeatable combination. Peter failed as a witness, and then Peter is immersed in the grace of God. 
and he becomes the most faithful witness. So what's the key to this? How does this happen? Repentance. Peter repented. That's what I think Jesus was leading him to on the beach. You know, I read an interesting article about a guy from my hometown, from Topeka, Kansas, who um, became a Christian. And it wasn't his conversion that, that made the newspaper, but his confession afterwards of being involved in a bank robbery that he was never caught for. And the statute of limitations had run up. He couldn't be prosecuted for it, but he wanted to confess it publicly which he did, and then paid back. And it wasn't a huge amount. It was under $1,000, but he paid back with interest the bank that he had robbed. Uh, Because on the same side of, on both sides of the same coin, our repentance, our confessing our sin, and also restitution, making it right. And that's exactly what this man did. You, You can't separate turning toward God and turning away from sin. That's what repentance is. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to turn away from sin and toward him at the same time. Peter's the one who deserved to be condemned, and Jesus forgives him. He lets him off. Jesus is the one who was innocent. He never sinned, and he deserved to be let off, and he's condemned. Look back at verse 24 in in Mark chapter 14. What does it say? This is my blood poured out as a sacrifice. That's what Jesus did for you. And he writes in John, 1 John chapter 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. You and I have a defense attorney. We need one. We've sinned before God. And so when God looks at us because of Jesus and him being our defense attorney, he just sees Jesus. You've got this on your outline. And he sees nothing but beauty and justice. That's what God sees when he looks at you. Beauty and justice. Because Jesus has died for your sins in your place. Paul said it like this in Romans, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who can, to condemn? It is Jesus who died. More than that, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for you. Jesus, right now, is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. So what does this change in our lives? And you've got this on your outline. The first thing it does is it frees us from guilt. It's so easy to beat ourselves up when we do something that we regret and we feel like we'll never be worthy again. If you think that's true of you, you don't just have a low opinion of yourself, you have a low opinion of God because God's grace is bigger than your sin. You're beating yourself up because you're trying to be your own savior and you can't be your own savior. Jesus can save you from your sin. He was the perfect sacrifice. Inferiority or a feeling of inferiority is still self-centeredness. It also means, and this is the second one on your outline, that we're not controlled by what others think. No one is to be criticized. No one likes to be criticized. Think of Stephen, the witness, a witness he was in Acts chapter 7. He's found guilty when he wasn't guilty at all. 
And he's about to be stoned to death. And what does he do? He looks to heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne. That's the place of advocacy. Jesus is advocating for Stephen. And what does Stephen realize? That even though he's being condemned by these people, he's being commended by God. And that's what counts. And what does he say at the end? He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Forgive them. So who cares what people think? And then it'll make you a great witness. That's the last one. It'll make you a great witness. You know, sometimes I'm guessing, like me, God gives you a nudge to talk to someone about your faith, to share with them how you came to faith, to have a conversation with him that you hope will lead to talking about our faith. And, and there's been times when you've blown it. You'll fumble through and you'll not say the right thing. And, but I want you to know, God uses even... Our, our, our weaknesses, he uses it. When we give ourselves to him and make ourselves available, he will use us. It's easy to be critical of others. I was talking to a friend of mine one time, a guy that I really respect and looked up to, a believer way more mature than me in the faith, and I was criticizing someone else's method of, of doing evangelism, of sharing their faith. And he was like, you know what? Life is too short to be critical of other people. Man, you need to pray for them. You need to, to, to support them and what they're doing. That's how God's led them. It may not be how God leads you. And then he said, let me tell you uh, something about D.L. Moody. And D.L. Moody was a, an evangelist, a humble man, the founder of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And, and he said D.L. Moody was preaching in England. And he was uh, giving all these crusades and uh, a young man came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, I, I just want to tell you, I don't really appreciate your style of evangelism. Moody was a humble man and, and he said, well, you know, I, I, I can learn from you and what, what, what's your method? What do, you, what do you do? And the guy kind of hemmed and hawed and he said, well, I guess I don't really have a method. And D.L. Moody said, well, I'll tell you what, I like my method of doing it better than your method of not doing it. Said it firmly, but kindly. But the point is that God will use our every effort for his glory. And so, you know, we don't actually win anyone to Christ. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. We're to be a witness. And God will honor any effort you make to, to, to be a witness for him. And so we're not critical of others. We make, we make sure that we're praying for them and that we're doing what God wants us to do. Let's pray. Father, the only way we can be a rock like Peter is by the grace of God. And so, Father, we want to immerse our weaknesses. We want to immerse ourselves. We want to immerse our sin in the grace of God. Thank you for this significant account in Mark 14 and that you did with Peter what you did with so many before him and that is turn failures into your successes for your glory. We pray that you would make us faithful and true witnesses like you did, Peter. We ask that you would help us to remember to put memories of past failures at the foot of the cross, the trust in your forgiveness, to immerse all of our past in your powerful grace. In Jesus' strong name we pray.
And now may the God of peace equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.